if a chair is in a dark room, or anything, I'll just say a chair for example, if an object is in a dark room, let's say a chair, and it's sitting there in the darkness, and then you turn on the light, <coughs> does the chair change? Does it become something other than it was while it was in the darkness? Of course, you can see it better in the light, but does it become fundamentally different when the light shines on it? No. It's exactly the same chair. You could sit on it with the light off, or you could sit on it with the light on. Its properties are fundamentally the same. A chair or any other object does not become fundamentally different when the light shines on it. But Paul says in the passage before us today, Ephesians 5, 8 to 14, that this is exactly what happens when God shines light into the hearts of sinners who are in the darkness. We are changed. When spiritual light penetrates the deepest places of our hearts, our hearts are changed. And from there, our whole lives are changed, and we begin to give off light. Yet this last aspect, us giving off light, does not happen automatically in a way that we are, in such a way that we are passive and cannot do anything but give off light. That's why Paul instructs the Ephesians here in this passage to walk as children of light in verse 8 and to expose the unfruitful works of darkness, verse 11. They won't just automatically do it. If they are passive, if they are indolent, they won't be giving off the light that they should. So Paul instructs them to give off light. This is the basic idea of this passage here this morning, and therefore the big idea of this morning's message. Light shone, Christian, upon you, and therefore light should now shine from you. Let me explain. This is what we're going to be unpacking this morning. Let's first, we'll start at the end of this section, verses 13 and 14. I want to, I want to look at Paul's argument his reasoning here, and we'll kind of work backwards to deal with the rest of the text. Let's begin by looking at verses 13 and 14, though. Paul says, When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul's language in verse, verses 13 and 14 is a little hard to understand. It doesn't come across really well in most of our English translations. Basically he's saying, when anything is exposed by the light, it is illuminated. And anything that is illuminated becomes light. So what he's saying is, when light shines on something, that thing actually becomes light. And as I just mentioned to you, that's actually not true in the natural realm. When we're just talking about natural light, that's actually not the case. Whatever is illuminated does not actually become light. If you shine light on a chair that was in a dark room and then turn the light off again, the chair isn't emanating light. 
So that's not true in the natural realm, but Paul is not talking about natural light. Paul is not reasoning about natural light. He's reasoning about spiritual light. And that's, that's evident from the fact that he is alluding to Isaiah. He says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So he's talking about the fact that Christ has shined on you, and therefore you have been fundamentally changed in such a way that you are now light. This is Paul's line of reasoning in verses 13 and 14. So, we'll come back to this in a second, but let's go back and look at Isaiah. Paul's alluding specifically to Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. But let's go back to the chapter before, Isaiah chapter 59, and get a little bit of the context that Paul is drawing on. In Isaiah 59, the prophet is speaking about the sins of the Judaites, the sins of Judah. He's talking about, in verse 50, chapter 59 and verse 2, he says, your, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And he's going on and he's talking about this sinful state that the people of Judah are in. And when he comes to verses 9 and 10, he says, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. The context of Isaiah 59 into which Isaiah 60 verses 1 and 2 speak is the context of spiritual darkness and spiritual deadness. The people in Judah are like those who are blind, those who have no eyes or whose eyes do not work and they are groping around trying to feel their way around, as it were. Not Again, not naturally, not physically, but we're talking spiritually here. They are groping around spiritually, trying to find their way, but they cannot. They stumble at noon as in the twilight. So here they are with prophets among them speaking the very words of God in the nation that God chose to be His people at that time, at that stage of redemptive history, the nation of Israel. Here they are in the midst of the nation of Israel with prophets speaking to them. So it's like noon, objectively as it were. Right? The Word of God is everywhere. They shouldn't be groping around. But they are spiritually blind. They are without light, as it were, spiritually. Spiritual light is not penetrating into them. And so they are groping around like the blind, like those who have no eyes. They're hoping for light, but all that they're finding is darkness. There are many today who are like this. They're trying to be, they're trying to live enlightened lives. They're trying to 
feel their way to God, feel their way to some kind of transcendent spiritual experience, whether it be in a traditional category like heaven, or whether it be uh, more of an Eastern category like a state of Zen, or something like this, or just self-actualization, self-fulfillment, a connection with something beyond, whatever it is that people are after. They are hoping for light, but all that they find is darkness. They're feeling their way around, doing what comes instinctively, trying to find God, but they're not finding Him. And meanwhile, the church cries out, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The gospel proclamation rings forth. And so in that sense, it's like noon. All you have to do is listen. <coughs> but in their spiritual blindness, in the absence of light, in their spiritual darkness, they respond, you're on the wrong side of history. You're narrow-minded. You're a bigot, and so on and so forth. And so, like the people in Isaiah's day, they continue groping around. And though, though the message rings out loud and clear, at least here in our, in our culture, in our context, the message is here. People want to know how to be saved? Come into a church and we'll tell you. We'll point you toward Jesus. And yet, even here in Barbados, many people are still groping around as if God is nowhere to be found. As if they can't find any light anywhere. Spiritual darkness. And this spiritual darkness is a result of spiritual deadness. Again, it's not as if the light is not there. The problem with a blind person is not that the sun is too dim. The problem is not that there are not things to be seen. The problem is in the perception Spiritual darkness comes from spiritual deadness. This is what we see throughout Scripture. Spiritual deadness causes spiritual darkness. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness and our foolish hearts are darkened. Romans chapter 1. This is the state of things. If the gospel is veiled, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, it is veiled to those who are perishing. For the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so spiritual darkness stems from, flows from, arises from spiritual deadness. We do not see light because we are spiritually dead and therefore our eyes are not working as they ought to, just as the eyes of a corpse in a casket six feet below the ground, also see only and always darkness. So this was the situation in Isaiah's day in Judah. The Word of God was there, was present. There was light to be seen. And yet they were not perceiving that light because of their spiritual deadness. So it is with us. There is light to be seen. There is light here emanating from God's Word even this morning. The things we're singing about, the things we're praying about, the things that I'm even preaching about to you now, the things that we're reading from the Scripture are light and life. And yet, if you are in a state of spiritual deadness, you are not perceiving any light from these things. 
this was the context of Isaiah 59, and we're not actually so far from it. <clears throat> but then look, look at the end of chapter 59. Beginning at verse 20, we read this. Isaiah 59 and verse 20, And a Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, from this time forth and forevermore. And so the idea here is that there's a promise of a Messiah who's going to come to the people of Judah and He's going to redeem them and He's going to establish a covenant with them. And then Isaiah 60 talks about that time when the Messiah arrives. It talks about what was then a future event as if it is present. It talks about a future event in a present tense. So Isaiah 59 is prophesying of a future thing. Isaiah 60 begins talking about that future thing, but talking about it in a present tense. Listen. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. This is what Paul is paraphrasing back in Ephesians chapter 5. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Into the place where there was spiritual darkness into the place where there was spiritual deadness. God sent His Messiah. A Redeemer came to Zion. Christ shone on the people who were dwelling in darkness. Christ shone on the people who were groping around in the darkness. Christ shone upon those who hoped for light but found only darkness. Christ shone upon the people who were dead. Christ shone upon them and they became light. This is Paul's reasoning here in Ephesians chapter 5. Look look back at verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. How did they become light in the Lord? By Christ shining on them. Christ shining on them transformed them. Christ shining on them changed them. This is what happened to the people of Judah. This is what happened to the Ephesian Christians. And this is what happens to everyone who becomes a Christian. Everyone. Jews, Gentiles, living then, living now. This is what happens to everyone who becomes a Christian. First, we could, we could summarize it. Pardon me. We could summarize it as Christ shining on you. This is what Ephesians 5.14 
says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We could summarize this, this process of salvation as Christ shining on someone. And first, what happens is that we see the light. Right? There's, that, there's that old song, I saw the light, I saw the light. Right? I saw the light. We see the light. This is the first thing that happens when a person becomes a Christian. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, which is quoted later in Matthew chapter 4 explicitly as referring to Christ. Those people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is what happened when Christ came. Or Zechariah's prophecy about his son, who would be John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 2, verses 76 through 79, he says, You, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This is the way that the scripture talks about, this is a way that the scripture talks about Christ coming, is Christ is a light who shines on the people who dwelled in darkness. He shines through means, through, we see in in this section, even through the preaching of John the Baptist, Christ shines. He shines through the preaching of the prophets. He shines through the preaching of the apostles. And He still shines today through the preaching of that same Word, the Holy Scriptures that we have. Christ shines, and when Christ shines upon a person... They see the light, as it were. 2 Corinthians 4.6 compares the original act of creation with this act of illuminating an unbeliever's heart. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. A clear allusion back to Genesis 1. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The first thing that happens in conversion is we see the light. We who were groping around, who were dwelling in darkness, who were trying to feel our way to God, but we could not because we could not see. We didn't know where we were going. Perhaps we even resisted the light that was already shining, so to speak. We were resisting those who were already telling us about Jesus, talking to us about Jesus. One day what happens is that the light penetrates into our hearts. And that is a supernatural work of God. Just as it was in Genesis 1, so it is in 2 Corinthians Four, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, makes that spiritual light penetrate all the way into the deepest part of your being such that you see the light. This glorious message, this beautiful, wonderful message of a glorious God in heaven who is holy, 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 who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, 
who has no fellowship with darkness, has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. As the Creed says, light of light, God of God. Himself to take upon Himself the responsibilities of human beings towards God, to be born under the law in order that He might live a righteous and law-keeping life in the place of those who have broken God's law. To go to the cross and to bear in Himself the wrath that we deserved for our sin. Such that whoever believes in Him finds life. Eternal life is pardoned for their sin, is clothed in His righteousness. This is the only way to God through Christ Jesus. That message is light and life. At one point, it did not penetrate into your heart, Christian. But at another point, it did. God got it all the way in. God broke through your spiritual blindness. God broke through your spiritual deadness and you saw the light. Christ shone on you. This is what happens in the case of every person who becomes a Christian. At some point, that light which as yet had not penetrated into their heart, penetrates into their heart. That's the first thing that happens. And those who dwell in darkness finally see a great light. The second thing that happens, or really it happens at the same time, but another aspect of what happens is those on whom the light shines, the light of Christ shines, become light. They're fundamentally changed. What is not true in the natural realm, as I began by saying, a chair doesn't actually become something other than a chair when a light shines on it. What is not true in the natural realm is true in the spiritual realm. That when Christ shines upon a person, that person becomes light. There is an actual fundamental change that happens to their nature when Christ shines upon a person. This is not the most common analogy uh, or way of describing what happens in conversion that we find in the New Testament, but it is indisputably biblical. We see in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8, you are light. Not you are in the light. You are light. And this is posited as having happened because of Christ shining upon the Ephesians. Christ shone upon them, and so they were darkness, but now they are light. Another well-known passage from 2 Corinthians 6 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For, the reasoning, what fellowship has light with darkness. Again, implying that we are light. There's a fundamental change that happens. We talked about that explicitly when we looked at Ephesians chapter 2. Regeneration. You were dead. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And 
now you are implicitly the opposite of those things because God made you alive. That was darkness. Now what you are is light. And you live a different way now. So unlike natural light, spiritual light transforms and that upon which it shines is changed. That upon which it shines is changed. Those upon whom Christ shines are changed. (coughs) So this is Paul's reasoning here. This is Paul's reasoning in this section. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes illuminated. And anything that becomes illuminated is light. Therefore it says, or that in keeping with what it says in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is Paul's logic here in this section. Christ shone upon you, and so you were darkness, but now you are light. Because it's a truism that those upon whom Christ shines become light. If Christ has shone on you, then you are not darkness any longer, you are light. That's why Isaiah 60 says it this way. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is Paul's logic here in this section. Christ has shone on you, and therefore you are light. Which brings us to the So what then? What does this mean for us? This brings us to the duty that Paul presses upon the Ephesians in this section of Scripture, which is to emanate light. Remember I said at the beginning that the big idea of this message is light has shone upon you, therefore light should shine from you. Light has shone upon you, therefore you should emanate light. Jesus, in the Gospels, tells us, I am the light of the world. Jesus tells us in the Gospels, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We ought to emanate light as those on, upon whom Christ has shined. We ought to shine. We ought to emanate light for Christ has shone upon us and changed us such that we are no longer darkness, but we are now light. Therefore, we ought now to shine. We read earlier in the service, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus tells us explicitly in that section of Scripture. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. Paul's telling us the same thing here in this section. You are the light of the world. Christ has shone upon you. Therefore, now you also ought to shine. He tells the Ephesians in this section 
in verse 11, Ephesians 5.11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He tells the Ephesians, stay away from a certain kind of behavior. What he calls unfruitful works of darkness. Now what is unfruitful work? Broadly speaking, it would be work which results in no fruit. Right? This is the analogy he's drawing on agriculture. You work your field all summer and then harvest time comes and nothing comes up out of the ground. Your work was unfruitful. This is what he's drawing on. Unfruitful work is therefore useless. There's no profit from it. And it's unsatisfying. Right? You hope that you're going to have a chance to eat something that grows. Part of your crop. Right? Paul talks elsewhere. says, doesn't the farmer deserve the first share of his crops? Unfruitful work is therefore useless work. Unsatisfying work. The unfruitful works of darkness, he says. When you were darkness, how did you live? How you lived when you were in darkness is unfruitful. This is what Paul's saying here in this section. Again, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, what did it look like when you were darkness? You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's what it looked like when you were darkness. That's how you lived. And that is an unfruitful way to live. That's like working your field all season and then seeing nothing come up at harvest time. That's what it's like to live in darkness. Mel and I were just talking this week. She, was, she ran into somebody who she went to school with a number of years ago. And their life has not turned out particularly well. Sin has made a mess of life. And we were just remarking that sometimes you don't see it at the time. People who are living unrighteously seem to be getting away with it, as it were, for a time. It seems to have no negative repercussions. In fact, many times it looks satisfying. But what you see is in the long run, it's always unfruitful. And this was the case with one of her classmates that she had run into. She saw that the unfruitful works of darkness had in fact been unfruitful. And that the course that this person had been pursuing all these years had led to an unfruitful state now in their early 30s. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about Moses. And it says that he... refused... To be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy, listen, the fleeting pleasures of sin. The fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin 
looks like it's going to be fruitful. Sin sometimes feels like it's going to be fruitful. But in the end, it never is. The works of darkness are always unfruitful. You see that even referring to Moses, right? There was the fleeting pleasures of sin, the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. Now whose works were more fruitful? Pharaoh and his army? Or the Israelites who left Egypt to worship Yahweh? You see? Pharaoh and his army ended up at the bottom of the sea. The worship of Yahweh in the end is fruitful. The works of darkness are unfruitful. We see that play out. Jude talks about false teachers and how false teachers are like waterless clouds. Waterless clouds. Sometimes, if we're not farmers, we can think of rain as a bad thing because it ruins our plans that we had to go outside and do this or that. But, but rain throughout most of human history has generally been considered a good thing because you need rain for your crops to grow. So when you see clouds, it's generally speaking a good thing throughout history. There's a promise of water which will nourish the land, which will cause crops to grow, which will in turn nourish you, and so on and so forth. False teachers, or you could just say in this case, analogously, sin in general is like a waterless cloud. It promises something, but it under-delivers. It promises something and gets your hopes up, but it under-delivers. The works of darkness are useful, pardon me, are useless in the end and are unsatisfying in the end. In contrast... The un, in contrast to the unfruitful works of darkness, though we don't see this exact phrase in this passage, what would be the opposite of unfruitful works of darkness? Fruitful works of light. Right? The fruit of light we see in verse 9 is found in all that is good and right and true. Light produces what is good and right and true. It is purposeful. It accomplishes something. In John chapter 15, Jesus teaches His disciples that He is the vine and that they are the branches. And He says that they should glorify the Father by bearing much fruit. That they should glorify the Father by bearing much fruit. That's John chapter 15 and verse 8. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and following, that some people are going to build on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones, and others are going to build on the foundation of wood, hay, and straw. This is, and it's talking about Christians. All, even those who build with wood, hay, and straw, are all Christians. Because he says in verse 15, Paul says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what he's talking about is that there are are works that we can do which are purposeful, that bring glory to God, which last into eternity. These are fruitful works of light. 
unlike the unfruitful works of darkness, there's a purpose to these things. And these things are satisfying. Back to John 15. After, after Jesus teaches all this about the vine and the branches, He says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Contrast working all season only to find at harvest time nothing springs up. Contrast that with working all season and find at harvest time you can't hire enough people to get the crop in. Your joy may be full. When you live in such a way that you bear fruit that glorifies the Father, not only does that redound into eternity to His glory, but it's also joyful to you. It's satisfying. It's like, it's like eating the first fruits of your crops and seeing this year has been a good year. This has been a good year in the fields and you have that satisfying feeling. 2 Timothy chapter 2, or pardon me, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Is that the language of somebody who is satisfied or unsatisfied? Satisfied. Paul comes to the end of his life bearing fruit, doing the fruitful works of light. And he comes to the end of his life and he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Is that feeling of satisfaction there? So, Paul is instructing us, back to Ephesians chapter 5 now. Paul is instructing us in this section. Christ has shone upon you. And the result of Christ shining upon you is that you are actually changed. You have been regenerated. If you have not been regenerated, conversely, the implication is Christ has not yet shone upon you. You may have heard of Christ with your ears. You may have read the Bible. You may have some intellectual comprehension of who Christ is. You may have some intellectual comprehension of that glorious message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You may have some comprehension of that. But if you have not been changed, if you have not been fundamentally transformed then Christ has not shone upon you in the way that Paul is talking about here in this section. Maybe like Christ has shone upon the roof of your heart, as it were, but inside all the lights are off. Christ has never really gotten in there. The light has never really shone in there unless you've been changed. But if you've been changed... It's because Christ has shone on you. Christ has shone upon you. Christ has changed you. You've seen the light. You've been transformed. (coughs) Now the imperative, the duty, the responsibility that Paul presses on the Ephesians is if Christ has shone upon you and you've been changed so that you are no longer darkness, but now you are light, now live as children of light. Walk as children of light. That's in verse 8. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That is, shine the light on them. For everything that is exposed by the light 
becomes illuminated. Verse 13. Right? So Paul is saying here in this section, Christ has shone upon you and you have been changed. Now therefore live as light. There's two aspects to that. One we've already covered. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. We need to avoid sins of commission. Committing certain sins. Doing things that we ought not to do. But we also ought to avoid sins of omission. Failing to do that which we ought to do. He says both of those things. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Do not commit sins, but rather expose them. Which is a way of saying shine the light. Shine the light on them. Do the things that you should be doing. Do the fruitful works of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't do that, but definitely do this. Take part in the fruitful works of light. Let your light shine. Expose those unfruitful works of darkness. So what does that look like? Practically. How do we expose the unfruitful works of darkness? How do we take part in the fruitful works of light? Well, obviously, at a very basic level, Taking no part in the unfruitful works of darkness means don't do the things that God has prohibited in His law. Right? What is, what is sin? The old catechism answer. Sin is any transgression against or lack of conformity unto God's law. And that covers the commission and the omission. Right? So don't transgress against God's law. Right? That's taking no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. But how do you take part in the fruitful works of light? And how do you expose the unfruitful works of darkness? I think two ways, biblically, that we see. One is by conforming unto the law of God. Sin is transgression against or lack of conformity unto. In other words, not doing what we should. Do the things that God has prescribed in His Word. These are the fruitful works of light. The fruitful works of light are not just whatever we feel like they might be. We don't, just, we don't just decide for ourselves what we think would be good and what we think would be right, what would be most pleasing to God. God has not left us without a rule of life. God has not left us without instruction as to how we should live. Look at the things that He prescribes in His Word and do those things. Those are the fruitful works of light. This is... And in doing these things, we're going to create a contrast between light and darkness. And even in doing these things, we're going to be shining light on the unfruitful works of darkness. You remember a few moments ago, I articulated to you, or I recounted to you the incident that happened this week where Mel ran into somebody that she went to school with many years ago, and she saw how sin had made a mess of her life. Well, if you, if you compare the way that a Christian lives with the way that a non-Christian lives over the long run, over time, the one will show itself to be fruitful and it will show the other to be unfruitful. So that's one way of exposing the unfruitful works of darkness. 
this past week I was reading about farmers in Nebraska and in the early days they were experimenting with different crops trying to figure out what would work in the climate and one of the farmers started putting wheat in his field or her field pardon me she had to do that for three years before the other farmers followed suit and stopped planting corn and started planting wheat because what happened was her planting wheat and then yielding a big crop three years in a row exposed the unfruitful works of planting corn you understand when we live in a way that bears fruit that glorifies God that satisfies us over time without saying a word that exposes the unfruitful works of darkness as unfruitful but a second way and this is one of the things that God has prescribed in his word which is a fruitful work of light is talk talk about Jesus talk about his gospel talk about his grace talk about what the Christian life is talk about what the Christian life isn't bring clarity bring light to those who dwell in darkness <coughs> bring the message <clears throat> one of the reasons I read from Luke 2 earlier Zechariah's prophecy about John the Baptist is to illustrate this point Zechariah didn't say that John the Baptist would be the sunrise that visits humanity from on high but he said that John the Baptist would give knowledge of the sunrise that visits humanity from on high. See? So John the Baptist gave light by bearing witness to the light. He himself was not the light, but he bore witness about the light. And through John the Baptist's witness, many who dwelt in darkness came to see the light. So we see that Christ shining upon someone, though it's a... In, in the end, it's a direct act of God upon their heart, getting the message in to places that our words cannot penetrate. God uses means to do that. He uses means to help people see the light. Means like John the Baptist. Oh, that it would be said of us that we would give the knowledge of that sunrise whereby God has visited us from on high. That you would be said to be a woman who gives knowledge of that sunrise whereby God has visited us from on high. That they would write, men, on your tombstones, He gave knowledge of the sunrise whereby God has visited us from on high. That we would be marked not only by fruitful works of light in terms of our actions and our behavior and our obedience to God, but the fruitful work of light that is being obedient to the Great Commission, bearing witness about the light, and that some of the fruit that we might see would be brothers, sisters, daughters, sons, husbands, wives, aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins, co-workers, friends, brought in to the kingdom. Oh, that some of the fruit from our works of light would be souls saved. That as we testify to the light, that we ourselves are not the light, but we came to bear witness about the light. 
as we testify of Christ, that people would be brought in. That Christ would shine on them and make them light as well. See, this is all part of God's big purpose. Habakkuk 2.14 says that the whole earth shall be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And God's plan and God's purpose is not to do that directly in such a way that we do nothing and God Himself appears to people directly and wins them to Himself without any effort or any involvement on our part. That's not... When you read the Bible, that's just very clearly not God's purpose. God's purpose is that Christ would shine on people and make them light and then that they would go and be the light of the world. That's God's purpose. It's apparent throughout the whole Scripture, really. But especially the New Testament, it comes into explicit focus. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Explicit. God's plan and God's purpose for bringing light to the nations is that Christ would shine upon us and make us light and then that we would go to the ends of the earth and testify of Christ who is the light. And through that proclamation, through translating the Bible into various languages, through preaching and establishing new churches and places where Christ has never been preached, through these means, Christ will shine upon the nations. Even here in Barbados, through the means of us going out and talking to our friends to our family members, to our co-workers. This is the means through which God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, will shine in people's hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God uses these means. And so, Paul is continuing in this section the pattern that he's established to put off and put on. Put off unfruitful works of darkness. Put on fruitful works of light. You were darkness. Now you are light. And so he says, walk as children of light. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Take no part in them, but rather expose them. Don't do that. Do this. This is what Paul is saying in this section. And the whole logic of the passage is Christ has shone upon you. Now you are light. Therefore, walk as children of light and as it were, let your light shine before men. That is the whole logical flow of this passage.